0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, she was once called the first American novelist, but this strikes me as a bit of a reach by well-intentioned but mistaken American scholars. They're eager to claim Charlotte Lennox and I don't blame them. She's a fascinating figure, a highly successful 18th century novelist lauded by the elder statesmen of the literary world of her day, and a pioneering critic. She's the author of The Female Quixote, a book that would be worth a, a look on the title alone, and a book about Shakespeare that says, hang on, here's a genius, but can we express a few doubts? Can we point out a few things about his female characters in particular? She's largely forgotten today, but she was a fixture of the 18th century. We dive into the life and works of Charlotte Lennox today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We're giving Emily Dickinson the day off today so we can get straight to our main topic. Charlotte Lennox will do her life first and then her main books and then because we could all use a little dessert now and then we'll throw in a my last book. We'll ask Camus scholars, Laura Maris and Alice Kaplan, what they would choose as the last book they will ever read. Let's get the American claim out of the way. Where did that come from? Charlotte Lennox was born in uh or born as Charlotte Ramsay, sometime around seventeen twenty nine. Most likely she was born in Gibraltar. Her father was a Scottish captain in the British Army. Her mother was Scottish and Irish. They were in Gibraltar on their way to England, where they lived for the first 10 years of Charlotte's life as her father moved from seafaring to landlubbing of sorts, becoming a lieutenant or a lieutenant. They then moved to Albany, New York, which was still a British colony, and it was later said, including by Charlotte, that her father was a lieutenant governor there of the state. In any case, the records are not totally clear. In any case, he died a few years after they got there. Charlotte was sent back to live with her mother's sister. But while she was en route, the family experienced some tragedy. A son died. The mother kind of fell apart, and Charlotte needed to find another spot. She became a companion to Lady Isabella Finch who was impressed by Charlotte's writings. Charlotte was only 14 at the time. By 17, she was already a published poet. She got married, took her husband's name of Lennox. Her husband was kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well, thanks to Charlotte and her literary fame, he eventually managed to acquire a job, which he held for about nine years. It was a job in a customs office, and it was reportedly bestowed upon him by the Duke of Newcastle, not because of his talents, but because the Duke was a fan of Charlotte's and her writing. Her husband spent his life claiming to be an heir to the Earl of Lennox, but this was denied denied by the courts, perhaps because he was illegitimate. Charlotte referred to these as birth misfortunes. If this sounds like the stuff of novels, like 18th century novels in particular, we can see why Charlotte, the budding young novelist, might have been drawn to her husband. In novels of the day, the parentage and birth misfortune would have a happy ending, but for her husband Lennox, not so much. But maybe the coda is that being married to a wealthy heir might not have been such a motivator for Charlotte, the budding young novelist. Charlotte Lennox wrote for money. She acted a bit too, but it was her poetry and later her novels, her best-selling novels, that ensured her fame. They also attracted the attention of one of our heroes here at the History of Literature podcast, Dr. Johnson, who had been a long-time contributor to a monthly magazine called The Gentleman's Magazine. Magazine was a newish word then for a periodical. It came from the French word magazine, which means storehouse. The Gentleman's Magazine was in fact the first publication to use that word for a periodical. Its founder, Edward Cave, had had the idea to feature a monthly digest on news and commentary with quotations and extracts from books and other newspapers and periodicals, anything that the educated public might find of interest. Dr. Johnson wrote parliamentary reports for them, but with an obvious slant. It was called Debates of the Senate of Magna Lilliputia. Sort of satirical, one can imagine. He also coined a poetic word for America, Columbia. Look at that. We can't get very far with Johnson before we start running into words and definitions and usages, as we'll see a little bit later in our show today as well. Columbia, the District of Columbia, that's, that's now etched in our brains. Well, Johnson was there first. Let's call it Columbia. Lennox also contributed to the Gentleman's Magazine. That's the point here. That's why we took that little diversion that's maybe how she came into contact with Johnson. The poem that would become her most famous, The Art of Coquetry," appeared there. I've looked up this poem. I thought it might be fun to read. We'll maybe hear a little bit of it later. It hasn't aged as well as I had hoped, but it impressed Johnson, who wanted to meet her, and did. A famous incident in Johnson's life was part of a tribute to Charlotte Lennox. She published her first novel, called The Life of Harriet Stewart, written by herself. And Johnson, impressed by the novel, threw a party for her, including such lavishness as a hot apple pie, spelled P-Y-E, adorned with bay leaf. He appreciated that she was writing under her own name not as a pseudonym as many other women writers felt forced to do, and he introduced her to other literary and artistic types, like Samuel Richardson and Joshua Reynolds. She was in her early 20s, and Johnson had just turned 50. Personally, Lennox was not exactly popular with most people. She was too independent, too energetic, some said too abrasive but she was always one of Johnson's favorites. He once went out to dinner with three women writers, all of them successful and all of them known as Blue Stockings, sort of the female intellectuals of the day. And he came home and he wrote, quote, I dined yesterday at Mrs. Garrick's with Mrs. Carter, Miss Hannah Moore, and Miss Fanny Burney. Three such women are not to be found. I know not where to find a fourth, except Mrs. Lennox, who is superior to them all. End quote. Johnson and the rest of the world were even more impressed by her next novel, The Female Quixote, or The Adventures of Arabella. Henry Fielding, author of Tom Jones, was another fan. Johnson encouraged her to write a book about Shakespeare, which she did. We'll talk about this book and her novels in the second half of the show. The response to the Shakespeare criticism was mixed. She wrote another novel called Henrietta which was successful but didn't bring as much money as her earlier works. And, unfortunately for Henrietta, a stage version of the novel was booed off the stage on its opening night. Lennox wrote for a different periodical called The Ladies' Museum and turned those passages into a novel called Sophia. She wrote another play that had some success, and in 1790 she finally published her last book, Euphemia, An epistolary novel set in pre-revolution New York, a throwback to her childhood. This might be why her, her reputation as an American novelist had come about. Some of her books, this book, Euphemia, another book has a character who comes from America on her way to England. All these were part of her experience, but she actually, I would say, was not exactly American, even though she lived there for a few years when she was younger. Her great fan after this book came out 1790, her great fan and protector Dr. Johnson had died 6 years before and her money was running out. She was now something like 60. She spent the last of the rest of her life broke. In 1804 at 73 or so, her birth year is still in dispute, so we don't know her exact age. She died and was buried in an unmarked grave. Jane Austen, among others, was still reading her. Northanger Abbey was partially inspired by the female Quixote. And then scholars began to rediscover Charlotte Lennox, first for the female Quixote and later for her feminist readings of Shakespeare. Today, she's admired for both. But none of this quite gets at the Charlotte Lennox who emerges from letters and anecdotes. I'm going to do something unusual. I think this is a first. I'm going to quote from a blogger, whom I don't know, called The Hairpin. Usually my quotes come from from primary sources, books, letters, essays, works of criticism, newspaper critics. In this case, it's a blogger. A blog post, which is kind of fitting since Charlotte Lennox was a bit on the periphery herself. But mainly, I want to quote this because I found this blog post to be energetic and iconoclastic and current in a way that the encyclopedia entries and other writings about Lennox often are not. So this blog post comes from 2015. Quote, back in undergrad, my dead writer bestie was Charlotte Lennox, author of The Female Quixote. I liked that novel. It was way better than Heart of Midlothian, but not as much as I liked Charlotte Lennox, who appealed to me for the same reasons Courtney Love appealed to me in middle school. She seemed like a crazy bitch. Lennox was aggressive and messy, exceptionally quarrelsome and imperious, in the words of author-professor Norma Clark, but also brilliant and industrious. She had hustle. She was an 18th-century woman, who wrote for a living. The crazy bitch, as I would have characterized her, is a female genius who is persecuted for not behaving like a woman should. She embodies certain character ticks that are easier to valorize than eliminate. It dawned on me, eventually, that you can be persecuted and still an a-hole. But Lennox was misunderstood. That was the point. I liked the way her mind seemed to have worked I was interested in how she lived. There was just something about her. Lennox was born around 1730. Little is known about her early life aside from the fact that she spent part of it in New York. As a teenager, she sailed to England, where she was supposed to stay with a relative who turned out to be either dead or insane. She found a couple of aristocratic patrons, to one of whom she dedicated her first book of poetry. They had a falling out of some kind, Lennox's first novel, "The Life of Harriet Stewart," published in 1750, featured an unflattering portrait of her. Lady Mary Wortley Montague, a friend of the slandered, was roused into great surprise and indignation by the monstrous abuse. Some of Lennox's most noteworthy haters were respectable women, partly because she goaded them, and partly because her attitudes scraped their sensibilities. Lennox was a contemptuous outsider, without wealth or title. She married a bookseller's employee, whom she'd end up having to support, and made no bones about writing for money. She was talented, charismatic, and approved by eminent men—Samuel Richardson, Henry Fielding, and above all, Samuel Johnson. But in the end, her novels weren't counted among theirs, and she was never a blue-stocking. Though her books are generally approved— said one contemporary. Nobody likes her. She was buried in an unmarked grave. End quote. That's from the hairpin. Very vivid. Doesn't it make you want to know more about Charlotte Lennox and her works? Well, let's take a quick break and then do just that. (laughs) Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack, here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, they their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, The Art of Coquetry. I read a lot of other poems looking for one that was better, but in the end, I agreed with the critics who say that this might be the best example of Charlotte Lennox's poetry, or or her poetry at its best, maybe I should say. And although the poem seems to take forever to get to the point, when it does, it gives us a, a glimpse, I would say, a kind of a glimpse of some kind of alternative to, what should we say, pure beauty, dazzling beauty, the kind of, of beauty that stands on its own. A dazzling beauty might win a man by force. But there's a nimbler game afoot, says the poem, which is not to aim for the head, but for the soul. And this is by playing a little hard to get. This is the, the tactic of shyness, bashfulness, being reserved. Here's the description in Charlotte Lennox's verse. The languid nymph enslaves with softer art. With sweet neglect she steals into the heart. Slowly she moves her swimming eyes around, conceals her shaft, but meditates the wound. Her gentle languishments the gazers move, her voice is music, and her looks are love. To few, though nature may these gifts impart, What she withholds, the wise can win from art. Then let your airs be suited to your face, Nor to a languished tack a sprightly grace. The short round face, brisk eyes, and auburn hair Must smiling joy in every motion wear. The quick unsettled glance must deal around Hide all design, and seem by chance to wound. Dark rolling eyes a languish may assume, These the soft looks and melting airs become, The pensive head upon the hand reclined, As of some sweet disorder filled the mind. Let the heaved breast a struggling sign restrain, And seem to stop the falling tear with pain. THE YOUTH, WHO ALL THE SOFT DISTRESS BELIEVES, SOON WANTS THE KIND COMPASSION WHICH HE GIVES. BUT BEAUTY, WIT, AND YOUTH MAY SOMETIMES FAIL, NOR ALWAYS o'er THE STUBBORN SOUL PREVAIL. THEN LET THE FAIR ONE HAVE RECOURSE TO ART, WHO CANNOT STORM MAY UNDERMINE THE HEART. FIRST FORM YOUR ARTFUL LOOKS WITH STUDIOUS CARE, FROM mild TO GRAVE, FROM TENDER, too severe. Oft on the careless youth your glances dart, a tender meaning let each glance impart. Whene'er he meets your looks, with modest price and soft confusion turn your eyes aside, let a soft sigh steal out, as if by chance, then cautious turn and steal another glance. As admired as her poems were, and as her stage adaptations sometimes were, and her acting was, I think it's in her novels where she found her voice, and that, that continued that voice continued into her book on Shakespeare. We begin when looking at her novels with the life of Harriet Stewart, which has been described as a quote, amateur romp, end quote. This is in that great tradition of books where the characters have been inspired by the books they're reading, the wild romantic adventures, which leads them into wild romantic adventures of their own. Horrid romances have turned the girl's brain, Harriet's mother observes. There is heavy sighing and excessive weeping and deep remorse. Ups and downs for a character who is almost comically self-centered, delusional. Harriet is a young woman taking the journey that Lennox herself took from America to England by coach, carriage, and ship. On the way, her beauty attracts the attentions of men, leading to some dangerous situations. The sea captain, for example, chases her around his cabin. But as she is determined to preserve her honor, she stabs him and heads for a window to jump into the ocean. It's the kind of book where the protagonist is chased by Indians on one page, saved by a captain who's in love with her, and then on the next page the protagonist, now that they've arrived at the relatively safe position of a fort, is concerned about whether she'll be dining with two gentlemen alone or whether she'll have a chaperone. Even in the midst of adventures, one must preserve one's reputation and heed all the niceties of polite society. Virtue comes with rules and struggle. Let's hear a little bit of the book. This is fairly early when she's been traveling with a man named Belmine, who is in love with her, but who now has decided to let her go. My virtue took the alarm at this sudden change. I saw nothing in his looks that spoke him so calm and moderate. His glances were tender and passionate. He grasped my hand with an eager pressure, and waited for my answer with a trembling impatience, all which spoke too much of the interested, designing lover, to leave me a possibility of doubting that he was meditating some stratagem to ensnare me. Though my heart labored with the blackest suspicions, yet my delicacy suggested a behavior that argued the utmost confidence in his promises." He desired his brother to give orders for the chaise to be got ready early in the morning to carry me to Fort H., which I found, by their discourse, was not many miles off. While he was gone to give the necessary orders for my journey, my artful lover, under the pretense of taking leave of me forever, pressing me eagerly in his arms, snatched several kisses by force, without my being able to disengage myself. At last I got loose and complaining with tears which pride and affronted modesty forced from my eyes of the unlicensed freedom he took with me, he fell again into his personated indifference, conjured me to pardon the last efforts of a passion he was resolved to suppress, and promised for the short time he was to have the pleasure of beholding me to behave with more reserve. Mr. Belmine now returned and told me, He had given directions to have a chaise ready, and that he would attend me, at what hour I pleased, to Fort H. I named eight the next morning, and expressing an inclination to retire, Mrs. Saunders was called to attend me to my room. As I found there was a necessity for staying that night, which was now pretty far advanced, I resolved to pass it in reading, being determined not to undress myself and go to bed in that suspected place. I dismissed Mrs. Saunders, who offered to stay with me, not being desirous of having a companion of her stamp. When she was gone, I fastened the door with great care and sat down to meditate on the mysterious behavior of Belmine. When I recollected all the inconsistencies he had been guilty of that day, I was convinced he had no intention of sending me home, and the dishonorable designs he had discovered inflamed my resentment against him to the last degree. I shuddered with fear when I remembered I was in his power, and that he possibly proposed to send me out of the province instead of restoring me to my family. If I accept of their proposal, thought I, how can I be sure that I am not precipitating myself into more certain danger? And if I continue here, what persecution may I not expect from Belmine, whose vanity will construe my voluntary stay as a secret approbation of his designs? In this distracting dilemma I fell on my knees and recommended myself to the protection of heaven with a fervor that drew tears from my eyes. While I was in this posture, a noise, which I heard on the other side of the room, made me start, and turning my eyes that way I saw Belmine enter by a door which had escaped my notice. Terror and astonishment seized me. He made but one step from the door to the place where amazement kept me still kneeling. He raised me up, and, kissing my hand, which I struggled in vain to draw from him, Do not, my charming angel, said he, refuse me the liberty of seeing you a few moments, when I have consented to lose that blessing to morrow forever. Yes, continued he, clasping me in his arms, I will part with you, since you desire it. I will part with you, my adorable Harriet, And though never man loved with that excess of violence that I do, and though by such a step I sacrifice all the quiet of my life, I will give this fatal proof of obedience to your will. Base and designing Belmine, was this a proof that he meant me honorably, to invade my chamber at so late an hour, and treat me with such unlicensed freedoms? I struggled to suppress the rage that, for some moments, had wholly engrossed my soul, and knowing that it was to dissimulation alone I could owe my safety, I seemed to be moved at what he said, and asked him, in a faltering accent, if he was sure he could keep his word. His eyes sparkled with pleasure at this discovery of my unsettled resolution to leave him. Yes, miss, said he. In a transport he could ill disguise, I can keep my word and part with you tomorrow, but possibly this cruel instance of my perfect submission to your commands will prove fatal to a life I had wholly devoted to you. If you had not determined, interrupted I, smiling, to send me away in the morning, I would have taken this night and tomorrow to have considered of the proposal you made me but perhaps you have now arrived to such a pitch of indifference that you'll hardly condescend to treat with me upon any conditions. The tone with which I pronounced these words convinced Belmine that I strove, under the appearance of raillery, to hide the confusion which my weakness in not being able to keep my resolution must necessarily cause. He threw himself at my feet in a transport of joy, kissing my hand a thousand times, which I suffered him to hold without any attempt to withdraw it. Oh, my adorable Harriet, cried he, how have you raised me in a moment from the deepest affliction to the greatest excess of happiness? Will you be mine then at last, my lovely angel? And after all the misery you have made me suffer, will you then consent to make me happy? I have told you replied I, that I will take some time to consider of what you proposed. At present I should be glad to be left alone. A little rest would be agreeable after the fatigue I have suffered. Belmine, who now thought himself absolutely sure of my consent, made no scruple to comply instantly with my desires. He again put on the submissive lover, and, kissing my hand respectfully, took his leave. I followed him to the door by which he had entered, and observed it led to a pair of back stairs. Having fastened it after him as well as I could, I sat down, oppressed with the most violent sorrow my heart had ever experienced. I saw no possibility of avoiding the dangerous snares my lover laid for my virtue, but by escaping from his power." End quote. Harriet Stewart is very aware of her virtue and the necessity of keeping it intact. It's in, constantly on her mind and her conduct is intensely devoted to it, though she has to work through all the conflicts and obstacles and and uh, invaders of that virtue. If the part about her being affected by reading romance novels and then living through the kinds of adventures herself, if that reminds you of Cervantes and Don Quixote immersed in tales of chivalry and going hog wild with pseudo-chivalric adventures as a result, then you're ready to hear about Lennox's second novel, The Female Quixote. Here we have another beautiful and spirited protagonist, in this case Arabella, who lives in a castle where she finds a batch of French romances in her father's library. She takes their lessons to heart. Men will fall at her feet but there are also dangerous cads who will steal her virtue. A gardener must be a prince in disguise, and so on. Her actions and general naivete lead to confusion and all-around hijinks as she continues with her journey to Bath and London, misreading situations and inadvertently wreaking havoc wherever she goes. Meanwhile, her cousin Glanville is in love with her, He sees that she's full of mistaken ideas, but he loves her anyway. And this is important. Glanville is an important figure because her father has said that only if she marries Glanville, this is what he had declared upon his death, she will lose her portion of the estate if she does not marry him. So he's hovering in the background. Meanwhile, his friend, Sir George Belmore, takes the opposite approach trying to win her over, not through patience and tolerance of her mistaken ideas, but but acting, he decides to act like a character straight out of the romances, be what she wants, be what she's looking for. Finally, toward the end of the book, she throws herself in the Thames to escape some horsemen whom she assumes to be ravishers. She becomes sick, a doctor arrives, and explains the difference between literature and reality then she recovers and decides to marry Glanville. After all, good news for her fortunes. The last chapter of the book sounds suspiciously like Dr. Johnson, or maybe it's the second to last chapter. One of those last ending chapters sounds like Dr. Johnson, who by this time had already baked her the magnificent apple pie and crowned her with laurel after her, the publication of Harriet Stewart. Maybe he revised this chapter, maybe, or maybe she was channeling him somehow, got his prose, the sound of his prose into her works. Maybe he just actually wrote it straight out. It's not clear. There's some textual evidence, but it's been disputed. But anyway, I don't think that his involvement detracts from her achievement. If you were writing a thriller and Stephen King loved it so much that he wanted to contribute a few paragraphs or a chapter, I'd view that as a testament to your greatness rather than any kind of smear against it. Don't you think? Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll hear some of the female Quixote, a very funny passage. Okay, this is from The Female Quixote by Charlotte Lennox. Here's the passage where, besotted with French romance novels, our heroine confuses the gardener's attempts to pilfer a carp with a potential ravishment of her, of her virtue. Quote, The Marquis' head gardener had received a young fellow into his master's service who had lived in several families of distinction. He had a good face, was tolerably genteel, and having an understanding something above his condition, joined to a great deal of second-hand politeness, which he had contracted while he lived at London. He appeared a very extraordinary person among the rustics who were his fellow servants. Arabella, when she walked in the garden, had frequent opportunities of seeing this young man, whom she observed with a very particular attention— His person and air had something, she thought, very distinguishing. When she condescended to speak to him about any business he was employed in, she took notice that his answers were framed in a language vastly superior to his condition, and the respect he paid her had quite another air from that of the awkward civility of the other servants. Having discerned so many marks of a birth far from being mean, she easily passed from an opinion that he was a gentleman to a belief that he was something more, and every new sight of him adding strength to her suspicions, she remained, in a little time, perfectly convinced that he was some person of quality, who, disguised in the habit of a gardener, had introduced himself into her father's service, in order to have an opportunity of declaring a passion to her— which must certainly be very great, since it had forced him to assume an appearance so unworthy of his noble extraction. Wholly possessed with this thought, she set herself to observe him more narrowly, and soon found out that he went very awkwardly about his work, that he sought opportunities of being alone, that he threw himself in her way as often as he could, and gazed on her very attentively. She sometimes fancied she saw him endeavor to smother a sigh when he answered her any question about his work, once saw him leaning against a tree with his hands crossed upon his breast, and having lost a string of small pearls, which she remembered he had seen her threading as she sat in one of the arbors, was persuaded he had taken it up and kept it for the object of his secret adoration. She often wondered, indeed, that she did not find her name carved on the trees, with some mysterious expressions of love, that he was never discovered lying along the side of one of the little rivulets, increasing the stream with his tears, nor, for three months that he had lived there, had ever been sick of a fever caused by his grief and the constraint he put upon himself in not declaring his passion." But she considered again that his fear of being discovered kept him from amusing himself with making the trees bear the records of his secret thoughts, or of indulging his melancholy in any manner expressive of the condition of his soul. And as for his not being sick, his youth and the strength of his constitution might, even for a longer time, bear him up against the assaults of a fever. But he appeared much thinner and paler than he used to be. And she concluded, therefore, that he must in time sink under the violence of his passion, or else be forced to declare it to her, which she considered as a very great misfortune, for, not finding in herself any disposition to approve his love, she must necessarily banish him from her presence, for fear he should have the presumption to hope that time might do anything in his favor. Then it was possible also that the sentence she would be obliged to pronounce might either cause his death, or force him to commit some extravagant action, which would discover him to her father, who would, perhaps, think her guilty of holding a secret correspondence with him. These thoughts perplexed her so much, that, hoping to find some relief by unburdening her mind to Lucy, she told her all her uneasiness. Ah, said she to her, looking upon Edward, who had just passed them, how unfortunate do I think myself in being the cause of that passion— which makes this illustrious unknown wear away his days in so shameful an obscurity. Yes, Lucy, pursued she, that Edward, whom you regard as one of my father's menial servants, is a person of sublime quality, who submits to this disguise only to have an opportunity of seeing me every day. But why do you seem so surprised? Is it possible that you have not suspected him to be what he is? Has he never unwittingly made any discovery of himself? Have you not surprised him in discourse with his faithful squire, who certainly lurks hereabouts to receive his commands and is happily the confidant of his passion? Has he never entertained you with any conversation about me? Or have you never seen any valuable jewels in his possession by which you suspected him to be not what he appears? Truly, madam, replied Lucy, I never took him for anybody else but a simple gardener. But now you open my eyes, methinks I can find I have been strangely mistaken, for he does not look like a man of low degree, and he talks quite in another manner from our servants. I never heard him indeed speak of your ladyship but once, and that was when he first saw you walking in the garden, he asked our john if you was not the marquis's daughter, and he said you was as beautiful as an angel. As for fine jewels, I never saw any, and I believe he has none, but he has a watch. And that looks as if he was something, madam. Nor do I remember to have seen him talk with any stranger that looked like a squire. Lucy, having thus with her usual punctuality answered every question her lady put to her, proceeded to ask her what she should say if he should beg her to give her a letter as the other gentleman had done. You must by no means take it, replied Arabella. My compassion had before liked to have been fatal to me. If he discovers his quality to me, I shall know in what manner to treat him. They were in this part of their discourse, when a noise they heard at some distance made Arabella bend her steps to the place from whence it proceeded, and to her infinite amazement saw the head-gardener, with a stick he had in his hand, give several blows to the concealed hero, who suffered the indignity with admirable patience." Shocked at seeing a person of sublime quality treated so unworthily, she called now to the gardener to hold his hand, who immediately obeyed, and Edward, seeing the young lady advance, sneaked off with an air very different from an arundate's. For what crime, pray, said Arabella, with a stern aspect, did you treat the person I saw with you so cruelly? He whom you take such unbecoming liberties with may possibly But again, I ask you, what has he done? You should make some allowance for his want of skill in the abject employment he is in at present. It is not for his want of skill, madam, said the gardener, that I corrected him. He knows his business very well, if he would mind it. But madam, I have discovered him. Discovered him, do you say? Interrupted Arabella. And has the knowledge of his condition not been able to prevent such usage? Or rather, has it been the occasion of his receiving it? His conditions are very bad, madam, returned the gardener, and I am afraid are such as will one day prove the ruin of body and soul, too. I have for some time suspected he had evil designs in his head, and just now watched him to the fish-pond and prevented him from— Oh, dear, interrupted Lucy, looking pitifully on her lady, whose fair bosom heaved with compassion. I warrant he was going to make away with himself. No resumed the gardener, smiling at the mistake. He was only going to make away with some of the carp, which the rogue had caught, and intended, I suppose, to sell. But I threw them into the water again, and if your ladyship had not forbid me, I would have drubbed him soundly for his pains. Fie, fie, interrupted Arabella, out of breath with shame and vexation. Tell me no more of these idle tales. Then, hastily walking on to hide the blushes which this strange accusation of her illustrious lover had raised in her face, she continued for some time in the greatest perplexity imaginable. Lucy, who followed her and could not possibly reconcile what her lady had been telling her concerning Edward with the circumstance of his stealing the carp, ardently wished to hear her opinion of this matter, but seeing her deeply engaged with her own thoughts, she would not venture to disturb her. Arabella indeed had been in such a terrible consternation that it was some time before she even reconciled appearances to herself. But as she had a most happy facility in accommodating every incident to her own wishes and conceptions, she examined this matter so many different ways— Drew so many conclusions, and fancied so many mysteries in the most indifferent actions of the supposed noble unknown, that she remained at last more than ever confirmed in the opinion that he was some great personage whom her beauty had forced to assume an appearance unworthy of himself. When Lucy, no longer able to keep silence, drew off her attention from those pleasing images by speaking of the carp stealing affair again. Arabella, whose confusion returned at that disagreeable sound, charged her in an angry tone never to mention so injurious a suspicion any more. For, in fine, she said to her, Do you imagine a person of his rank could be guilty of stealing carp? Alas, pursued she, sighing, He had indeed some fatal design, and doubtless would have executed it, had not this fellow so luckily prevented him. But Mr. Woodbind, madam, said Lucy, saw the carp in his hand. I wonder what he was going to do with them. Still, resumed Arabella, extremely chagrined, still will you wound my ears with that horrid sound. I tell you, obstinate and foolish wench, that this unhappy man went thither to die, and if he really caught the fish, it was to conceal his design from Woodbind. His great mind could not suggest to him that it was possible he might be suspected of a baseness like that this ignorant fellow accused him of. Therefore, he took no care about it, being wholly possessed by his despairing thoughts. However, madam, said Lucy, your ladyship may prevent his going to the fish pond again by laying your commands upon him to live. I shall do all that I ought answered Arabella, but my care for the safety of other persons must not make me forget what I owe to my own. As she had always imputed Mr. Hervey's fancied attempt to carry her away, to the letter she had written to him, upon which he had probably founded his hopes of being pardoned for it, she resolved to be more cautious for the future in giving such instances of her compassion, and was at a great loss in what manner to comfort her despairing lover— without raising expectations she had no inclination to confirm. But she was delivered from her perplexity a few days after, by the news of his having left the Marquis's service, which she attributed to some new design he had formed to obtain her, and Lucy, who always thought as her lady did, was of the same opinion, though it was talked among the servants that Edward feared a discovery of more tricks, and resolved not to stay till he was disgracefully dismissed. End quote. Henry Fielding, the author of Tom Jones, wrote a rave review of the female Quixote. He was himself an ardent devotee of Cervantes, and yet he found several aspects where Lennox had outperformed her illustrious predecessor. The character is more sympathetic, Fielding thought, and the adventures are more interesting. He gave Cervantes credit for being the original and for passages that are more exquisitely ridiculous, and he thought Quixote and Sancho Panza worked better than Arabella and her maid Lucy. He thought Cervantes excelled in providing instruction and moral lessons, but he clearly credited Lennox as being on a par with Cervantes and concluded that critics of her work were likely only to be attacking her out of envy or ignorance. And finally, we turn to her work on Shakespeare, which Dr. Johnson had urged her to undertake. He himself was in the middle of working on his dictionary, and it's been suggested that he thought that she might finish a work on Shakespeare so that he didn't have to write one. He did write one years later, maybe because he knew that only he could approach Shakespeare in the way that he did, or maybe because he needed the money and a publisher was willing to pay him for it. In any case, Charlotte Lennox did a different kind of reading of Shakespeare. It was innovative in a couple of ways that end up relating to one another. First, it's the first full-length critique of Shakespeare by a female author. And second, it's the first full-length critique of Shakespeare that compares his works against their source materials. This is one of my favorite ways to read Shakespeare, by the way. I love looking at his artistic choices, by comparing the passages of the histories or the other plays or whatever else came before those to see what Shakespeare did with them. You can see a genius at work adding elements or sometimes subtracting them to make the characters and their motivations more pronounced and dramatic. In her case, and this is why I've said the two innovations came together, she had a particular eye for... The way Shakespeare's changes often affected his female characters. She could be critical. Again and again, she noted, Shakespeare stripped female characters of agency or dramatic importance. They were there in the source materials. They're not there in Shakespeare's plays. She disapproves of the trial at the start of King Lear, for example, which Shakespeare invented and which she found absurd. Cordelia, rather than being able to modestly enjoy... The conscious sense of superior virtue, as she did in the original, now has to wrestle against the suspicion of guilt. And so on. Of Hamlet, Charlotte Lennox notes that Shakespeare has adapted the story of Ophelia from his source material, and generally she approves of how he's handled the incident, but she argues that he also gives Ophelia's madness short shrift. It would have made a very affecting episode, she wrote, if the lady had been more modest in her frenzy and the lover, Hamlet, more uniformly afflicted for her death, for at his first hearing it, he expresses only a slight emotion. Presently, he jumps into her grave, fiercely demands to be buried with her, fights with her brother for professing to love her, then grows calm and never thinks of her more. End quote. Charlotte Lennox may have been the first critic to stand up for Ophelia. She certainly wouldn't be the last. Lennox's views of Shakespeare sold well, but were not universally welcomed. The Gentleman's Magazine, her old publication, accused her of attempting, quote, to prove that Shakespeare has generally spoilt every story on which his plays are founded by torturing them into low contrivances, absurd intrigues, and improbable incidents. Once again... It was Johnson who came to her aid, writing, When Shakespeare is demolished, your wings will be full-summed, and I will fly out at Milton, for you are a bird of prey, but the bird of Jupiter. What did he mean by that? Jupiter is the god of the sky, of storms and thunderbolts. Maybe Johnson was referring to Charlotte's reputation as well. Once she was put on trial for attacking her maid. Other women, as we've seen, didn't like her. Her house was untidy, they said, and she herself was uncouth, abrasive, offensive, and maybe, in that way, the kind of crazy bitch, hat-tipped to hairpin, who could write with fearlessness, taking on Cervantes and Shakespeare and publishing under her own name, a rarity for women at the time. Nobody suffered fools less than Dr. Johnson, and he loved... Charlotte Lennox. She might have been unlikable, as many artists are, but he looked past all that to the quality of her mind and the works she produced. And for us, centuries later, it's easy to do the same. And finally, we turn to two scholars who together wrote a pandemic-inspired take on Camus and the plague. After my conversation with them, I asked them a special question. Okay, we're joined now by Laura Maris and Alice Kaplan, author of States of Plague, Reading Albert Camus in a Pandemic. Laura and Alice, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be. This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
1: I can go first if you like. Um, like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't jump in all at once. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it's a serious question. <laughs> I hope, it's not, the, hope it's not the same book. Uh, I think my answer would be all The Rings of Saturn.
2: Oh, um, mm-hmm.
1: I usually read it about once a year. (laughs) I think it has one of the most beautiful passages at the very end about the soul's journey to the afterlife. And it's really not necessarily in a religious way, but it's about kind of the understanding of memory and how memory is layered forward, moving on into the future. I think that would be my choice.
0: Ooh, yeah, that doesn't even need a follow-up question to see how that would apply. Alice, how about you?
1: Okay, well, the one I would want to read in those last days of reading would be Proust, Time Regained, mm. which is something as Finding Time Again, Le Temps Retrouvé, because there's such a sense in it of what it's like to be old and see people you've known your whole life. Mm-hmm. And their younger selves through their old faces, the layers of people as they age. And then also, there's an incredible sense of all of life as a kind of misunderstanding. The narrator realizes that the book he's been trying to write has always been inside him. There's just, they're just those last thoughts of life that I would want to get in touch with through that book. Yeah.
0: I read it when I was very young in my early 20s, I remember that feeling that it was just this cascading of characters being reimagined or revisited or, or reinterpreted, understood in a new way, and him understanding his life in a new way and his memory and all these things that had been important to him kind of flooding back and feeling like, that it was a wonderful journey to be on and a wonderful conclusion to it. But you couldn't skip over the early books to just read that one, for example, that you had to go on that journey with yeah. him. But because of where I was in life, I was sort of looking at it as, well, this is a, a call to action for me that I need to build memories. I need to live life so I can have this experience later and what I probably should do now that, I've, now that I'm... You totally
2: need
1: totally. To reread it the way Laura rereads Rings of Sans Saturn. I mean, yeah. there are yeah. certain books that have to be read multiple times, right. all the way to, oh. yeah. But it's your memory, too, like how your memory of reading it each time is different,
0: <laughs> right? Right, and that your experience of reading becomes one of the memories,
1: mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. Mm.
0: Okay, Laura Maris and Alice Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank
1: thanks you so much for having us.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris for joining me for that cameo appearance selecting their last books, and of course to Charlotte Lennox and to Doctor Johnson. Always great to have him pop by. Dr. Johnson and Virginia Woolf, my two favorite critics of all time, I think. They're always interesting and always a step ahead of me, a step or two or ten. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: Thank you.